Today on the LA Food Podcast, I'm your host, Lucas Rivodio, and you may want to ensure you're wearing your Sunday best, dear listener, because on this episode, we're joined by Los Angeles culinary royalty. Gilberto Cetina is the chef and owner of Holbosch, the Los Angeles Times 2023 Restaurant of the Year. Cetina and his family have been blessing our city with the food of the Yucatan for the better part of two decades now, serving up dishes like cochinita pibil and panuchos out of the iconic Mercado La Paloma in South LA. Since 2017, Cetina's focus has been on ideating and executing some of the most exciting mariscos preparations you can find anywhere in the country from smoked campachi tacos that perfectly distill the essence of the fish into a few glorious bites to tostadas raspadas that crackle tantalizingly in your mouth like good old chicharrones. On this episode, Cetina traces the journey that brought him to where he is today. The story culminates, of course, with the opening of Holbosch, and Chef Cetina is very generous in letting us see behind the curtain to learn more about the magic behind some of his most iconic dishes. Of course, no conversation with Cetina would be complete without asking him what it's been like to be showered with accolades in recent years. He tells us a moving story of how the LA Times Award marked a full circle moment for him in his career, and he also roasts me for ranking Holbosch third in my own personal list of best LA taquerias. Needless to say, I deserved it. One quick housekeeping note, like most of Los Angeles, my microphone decided to go on strike for this episode. However, while my sound quality is far from five stars, Chef Satina's audio is pretty much loud and clear. And that's what really matters, because let's face it, you get enough of my 8th grade humor on this pod as it is. So without further ado, let's chat out. Joining us today on the LA Food Podcast, it's the chef and owner of Chichen Itza and the LA Times Restaurant of the Year, Hol Bosch. It's Chef Gilberto Cetina Jr. Chef, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. It is my pleasure and an honor to be your guest. Oh my God, an honor is all ours, and I am so excited just just to meet you through the virtual screen. Uh, what are your LA stomping grounds? Where are you calling us from? I'm calling from Torrance. I'm actually home today. Uh, Monday is my day off, um, and uh, just you know, chilling at home and uh, recording this podcast. Oh well, it's an, uh, it's even more of an honor to know you're doing this on your day off. How do you uh, typically spend your days off when you're not recording podcasts? You know, um, my my work schedule is pretty hectic. It has been. It's just you know part of the business, part of being in the restaurant business. Um, so because of that, Mondays are usually a day for crashing. You know, I stay home, spend some time with my wife and, uh, in the afternoon, spend some time with my daughter and uh, watch some TV and just crash and recover, get, get ready for the, for, for the week to come. That's awesome. You watching anything good right now on TV? Um, you know, um, the bear was fantastic. Just recently watched that. That, that was great. Um, what else did I see recently that was really good? Um, bum, 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 bum. No, nothing else comes to mind. Well, you know, the bear, uh, we love that show. So that's the perfect answer, honestly. Uh, so you, you live in Torrance right now, but you grew up in Orange County part of the time. Is that right? Yeah. So I grew up, uh, kind of between Orange County and Mexico. So I was born in Mexico. I you know, lived there until I was five. Then my family uh, moved to the States and we landed in Orange County because we had, 
you know, my dad had a brother there. So there was some family there and that family connection took us to Costa Mesa. Um, we lived there and, you know, for eight years, uh, this was till I was around 13 years old and then we moved back to Mexico. So, um, and, and this is, uh, when I say Mexico, I mean Merida, that's, that's the part of Mexico that we're from. So Merida, Yucatan. And, uh, we, you know, we were there for, um, about eight years when I was 21 years old, moved back to the States and, um, Originally was living uh, in uh, Los Angeles, so we moved back to open uh, Chichen Itza restaurant, which it was uh, my dad's dream to have a Yucatan-only menu, you know, to have a little restaurant that served uh, the food of our uh, region of Mexico, which is, which was, or maybe still is, but back then even more so, very underrepresented um, in the United States, in Los Angeles. Um, so that was, that was the reason why, uh, the move back, uh, to the States in, uh, 2000, between 2000 and 2001. So let me ask you about what it was like to go from living here in Orange County, Costa Mesa, to then going back to Mexico when you were what, 13, 14? 13. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, my sister and I, I have an older sister. She's a year older than I, uh, were a little reluctant. Uh, we didn't want to move back because look, we didn't know Mexico really. We didn't really remember it. Um, and I think the first few months were, you know, uh, difficult. Um, you know, the change of environment, we didn't have all the things that we had here. Like I was really big back then into collecting baseball cards and watching ESPN. And I thought it was the end of the world that I wouldn't <laughs> ESPN. Um, but you know, that, that, that quickly changed, uh, due to just having our cousins around, having family around. And we started experiencing a different side of life that we didn't have here, even though we had friends here and we would go out and play there. It was different. We had, you know, dozens and dozens of cousins around us all the time. And the, uh, the, the just the social the family and social aspect uh of living in mexico it's it's a lot different than it is here there uh that family connection is so important it's so big and uh, we got to experience that um you know for uh seven or eight years which was fantastic i i really enjoyed being in mexico from the age of 13 to 20. i it was it was it was a fantastic time yeah i mean uh, that sounds like a good time to in, ter in terms of time of your life, in terms of going out, having new experiences, maybe even tasting your first steps of independence as well in Mexico. I'm curious about the difference between the foods you were experiencing as a child in the United States versus when you got to Mexico. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you had some familiarity with that because of what you ate at home, but what was that whole experience like entering into a whole new culinary landscape? So I was very familiar with the food that we ended up eating when we went back to Mexico because in in, in my household uh, here growing up in the States, cooking was always a side hustle. My parents were always cooking and, you know, they had their nine to fives. My dad worked in a restaurant. My mom worked uh, as a, you know, cleaning houses. And, um, but the weekends were for selling food. The weekends were full of panuchos and cochinita pibil and tamales, tostadas and empanadas. And this was ongoing for the entire time that we were here. So as a lot of, you know, migrant families uh, end up doing, uh, if you want to make ends meet, you 
and my dad sometimes had two jobs and still would, you know, we would do food on the weekends. So um, I was very familiar with it. Um, we, you know, my sister and I were always the little helpers uh, with the, um, with the prep. Uh, I especially remember the tamal, the tamal, um, you know, we would get like a, a big, a big bowl of steaming hot chicken thighs that we had to, you know, shred with our, with our delicate little fingers uh, to help my mom make the filling for the tamales, which we would then uh, sell at church after church service. Um, and this was in, in Costa Mesa. Um, so, you know, we, we, we did plenty of that. We ate plenty of, of the food growing up. So I was very familiar with it. And in my household, uh, my parents were always very insistent on Number one, we speak Spanish at home, and number two, we eat our our food at home. There's enough opportunities to explore the local food or American food or, or different types of food, um, but at home it was uh, mostly my mom doing the cooking, and um, it, it was all traditional Yucatan style stuff. That you know the type of things that we uh, sell at Chichen Itza restaurant. Yeah. So, did you like this experience of? of cooking as a kid or was this more just like like you know a lot of kids have chores have to take out the trash have to mow the lawn yours was filling tamales it was a gigantic never-ending repetitive chore we did not <laughs> like it we, we we would rather do anything else with our weekend than prepping food and then you know going out and and, and selling it uh, no we, we didn't like it and uh by the time uh i was 13 and we moved back to Mexico that was one of the positives uh about moving back was yeah no more vending uh tamales uh at the church or you know making cochinita for somebody's uh party um I wanted nothing to do with food after that I was done for life I thought <laughs> You say that your you your family moved back here uh, when you were twenty twenty one years old to open yeah. Chichen Itza. Was that something you were always going to be a part of? Was that was that how, was that the life you envisioned for yourself? Uh, no. So I was studying computer science um, and was really into you know programming and uh, yeah anything computer related. I was doing some jobs here and there doing some you know I, I it work for local businesses and installing networks and um i was even selling computers uh and 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 writing some software as i was uh, still uh, studying for that um so so then my dad says hey you know i'm gonna you know open a, a so I'm, I'm gonna open chichen itza uh, i'm gonna open a restaurant that is gonna focus on yucatan style food can you come and help me for six months? And I was like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll drop what I'm doing um, to go down there and help you for six months. Um, and I was really in a hurry for those six months to be over and get back to my life uh, in Mexico. That that didn't, you know, work out. Um, I, you know, my dad asked me, hey, can you help me out for another six months? And I said, yes. And, you know, at that point, being there for about a year, I started to kind of enjoy the work. And, I, you know, I saw that there was a lot that I can do that was outside of the kitchen. So I was focused on, okay, so, you know, let, let's build a website. Let's start, let's start a catering business out of our restaurant. Um, and, and any, like, kind of front of the house tasks um, that needed to be done. Anything except in the kitchen. 
No, I was actively avoiding the kitchen. So anything that needed that needed help that was not cooking. Uh, but then uh, about two years after, uh, I'm going to say 2000 and around 2004, uh, we opened a second location. So at this second location, uh, we you know we hired a chef to 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 help my dad because my dad was going to stay at the original location, and um, I was I, I was to manage the new the new location. So, you know, we opened up, things were, things were going pretty well, but, um, the, the chef that we'd hired who, you know, he, he was good and he was actually from Yucatan. Um, he had, he had that and he kind of knew the, the, the flavor profiles and the food traditions of, uh, of our part of Mexico, but he did things slightly different than my dad did. And I've constantly found myself trying to help him, let's say in the kitchen or, you know, correct him, but I didn't know. I didn't know how, you know, I, 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 I couldn't show him how to do it. So with like a real sense of urgency, I'm like, well, I need to show Jose how to, you know, how to cut the tomatoes the way my dad did for a specific sauce or a sofrito. So I would teach myself how to do it and then go in the next day and show him how to do it. Um, that didn't go over very well with Jose, but that's, I you know, <laughs> No, he was very patient with me, and I don't think he he really had a choice either, um, but but to accept my help, um, and you know as as I started uh, you know uh, learning slowly, and this is very slowly. I'm talking about learning. I didn't I didn't have any knife skills. Uh, the my my childhood prep knowledge was limited to like shredding chicken and cutting banana leaves and just you know tasks that don't really require a lot of skill or using a knife. So I start learning. I start uh, being curious about uh, cooking and other cooking processes. And the more I research to try to, you know, uh, help in the kitchen, the more curious I get. So I start reading cookbooks. I start reading, you know, the um, the Cordon Bleu books. I start buying those, the entire curriculum and the the CIA books. I start learning about sauces and, and and classic European technique and meat fabrication, fish fabrication, and and uh, charcuterie and all these all these things and, and bread baking. As a matter of fact, the recipe for bread that we currently use at Chichen Itza and Holbosch still is the recipe that I developed while I was at that second location. And that's this, just something that fascinated me um, once I started learning about it was was baking. Um, I had no idea about, you know, yeast and, and, and fermentation and, uh, and proofing and all of that. So I, I just, you know, I just found it fascinating. Um, my dad started noticing that I was doing a very poor job of managing the restaurant and really <laughs> just spending most of my time being, uh, being Jose's assistant. And at first he was reluctant. He, I don't think he wanted that for me. I think he wanted me to, you know, wear the suit and be the front of the house guy and be the entrepreneur or the restaurateur. Um, and that was never very gratifying for me, you know, and I felt a lot of joy uh, when I was in the kitchen, even if it was doing really simple things. And that's still the case for me. I, I, I found, I find the most joy in it, in, in, in my day when I'm you know, in the kitchen with the crew, um, doesn't matter what you're doing, cutting tomatoes, making stocks on the line, doing, do, doing prep. doesn't really matter. That's really where, where, why I'm still in this business, why, I, why I enjoy doing it. What changed 
because you talk about like when you were a kid, you hated, you know, the task of a task of, you know, shredding the chicken for the tamales. What changed between that experience and then this sort of newfound passion and interest and excitement for what's happening in the kitchen? Because I, I think when I was a, when, when I was a kid, it was and you used the perfect word earlier. It was a chore. It was a big old chore that we just had to do. And as an adult, um, you know, during this time, during this process, it, it really it, it it came from a from a place of curiosity, and that turned turned into genuinely a passion for. I was so enamored with the idea of cooking and learning more, and then I started learning about you know these. Michelin star restaurants. I'd never heard about about oh, that that was a thing, and fine dining restaurants, and El Bui and the Fat Duck, which were you know all the rage. Um, it got to the point where I was making like sour orange spherifications at the at, at the <laughs> restaurant, and, and I wasn't serving it to anybody, but it was just like, oh, this is so interesting. I was so curious about it. I quickly you know uh, found out also that those that those things are are are, are fun techniques, but are not really you know my type my type of food but it was it was it was fun to learn how to make them then my dad realized that i wasn't you know doing much management we hired a manager uh he gave me my first chef's uh, knife kit and he said you know what go for it shortly after that <clears throat> the restaurant closed and it was the probably due to the second restaurant yeah it closed and it was probably due to you know just really bad management um because i wasn't really paying attention to that and I went back to our original location at Mercado La Paloma, which we're, we, we're still there today, and to work side by side with my dad. And that's when I really started learning about all the, uh, the <clears throat> traditional cooking techniques and everything that makes up traditional Yucatan food. Yeah. That's awesome. So what, what lessons did you learn from that closure of the second, of the second location of Chichen Itza? Um, that, that, that was, that was a tough one. Um, I mean, it was, it was really difficult financially for us. Um, I thought it was the end of the world. I, you know, quickly realized that, it, that it wasn't. Um, I also learned that, you know, even from, even from, ex, you know, what can be considered a, a failed venture, um, just being out there and doing things, um, always has some positive effects. So. Like I said, even even that was in my eyes, and, and you know, obviously it was because it closed. It was a failed venture. When we were there, is really when we started to get some attention from like local media, and uh, I think it was LA Weekly back in the day. Jonathan Gold was there, and you know, started you know, inviting us to food festivals, and we started to get write ups here and there, and we got a lot of traction um, for being this Mexican restaurant that specializes and is really is devoted and won't go outside of the realm of Yucatan style Mexican. That's also about the time when there was uh, the, the interest in the regionality of Mexican cuisine started to, to become popular and people uh, started to realize that Mexican food was a lot more than, you know, combo menus and enchiladas and burritos and carne asada and they started to seek out places that's that that you know that were regional that that specialized in a specific part of mexico um i mean i i can you know obviously think of like galaguetza uh, was already going at that time and they were 
kind of the pioneers in uh, in really exposing the LA diners or, or to the nuances of regional Oaxacan cooking. So we were doing something similar, smaller scale with Yucatan. And um, yeah, we got a lot of traction in, in that sense uh, from being at that location, the MacArthur Park neighborhood of town. And even though it was a, a failed business venture, I think it it uh, it did serve, serve us a lot. I mean, for me, it's where I got my start in, in cooking and got us some traction with the media and kind of got the ball rolling uh, for Chichen Itza, the original Chichen Itza at Mercado La Paloma. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's continued uh, till this day. Well, I, I've heard from, you know, a lot of your peers in the industry that one of the hardest things to develop and nurture in the industry is talent, getting people who work at the restaurant and who are passionate about it and who are dedicated to it. So, you know, if what happened with the second location of Chichen Itza is that you found your way in the kitchen and became the force that you are today, I'd say that's a pretty good success story. What year are we in now when second lo location closes and you're back in Mercado La Paloma? So second location closes in 2008, early 2009, actually, right after the crash of 08. Uh, so I'm back. Uh, in the kitchen with my dad every day, you know, coming in and um, just, you know, doing the work and doing the prep and and uh, learning and uh, just kind of honing my skills in the traditional uh, techniques of uh, Mexican cooking, specifically Yucatan style cooking. Shortly after that, my dad starts stepping back from kind of day-to-day -day operations at the restaurant. You know, he's getting up there in age and... Kitchen work is is you know can can be difficult on the body and you're you're standing for you know many hours and it's hot and it's it's you know not not the funnest not the most comfortable uh, let's say uh, place to be working so he starts stepping back and I take over of uh, as as chef of Chichen Itza this is 2010 um, we start implementing some changes. Uh, we, you know, uh, kind of cleaned up a little bit in, in terms of, um, the, uh, techniques that we're using and just, um, trying to, uh, mo not, not modernize, keeping everything traditional, but we, we did kind of sneak in some, uh, some, 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 uh, modern techniques where, where they were appropriate, you know? For example, turkey can be obnoxious, turkey breast can be obnoxiously dry. Um, and we, we sell, uh, one of the main items that we sell there are called panuchos. Um, it's a handmade tortilla filled with black beans. It's pan fried crispy. And because it's filled with beans, really only the edge that doesn't have beans gets crispy and the center is still, you know, kind of soft, like semi crispy. And then it gets topped with shredded Turkey. Now this Turkey traditionally is, uh, poached, mm -hmm. whole Turkey poached. Uh, starting there, we have a problem. You're poaching a whole turkey, and how do you get the breast and the legs cooked perfectly? Um, you can't, so you have you have to separate it, right? Uh, so poached turkey, then it gets this achiote rub, and then it goes on the mesquite grill to get a nice char um, and, and develop flavor and cook the achiote that you rubbed on the outside. Well, at this point, the turkey breast is... It's a goner, right? So what we started doing was, um, what I started doing was, well, let's break down the turkey. Let's uh, vacuum pack the breast and let's uh, let's brine it uh, with all the ingredients that would go into the poaching liquid. 
So, um, you know, we, we would add the cilantro and the oregano, black pepper, everything that would go in the poaching liquid to flavor the turkey. We, we, we put that in the bag, made a rub, put it in the bag, sous vide, and uh, cooked it, you know, very gently until it was just, you know, just barely set, around 145, 150 degrees Fahrenheit. And then we would uh, take it out of the bag, add it dry, do the rub, and then cook it on the, on, on the charcoal grill. And the result was, you know, just so much better. It wasn't dry turkey breast. So small things like that, really nothing that changes the essence of the food, um, but uh, just applying a little bit of modern technique where appropriate. Yeah. So we're now we're at, you know, 2011-ish. And that's really when I start playing around with like doing seafood specials. And I just start incorporating uh, a lot of seafood into our specials, into our regular menu and into also events. Uh, if we were doing the taste of something or food and wine something, I would always, you know, do take a big charcoal grill and take some yellow tails or some white sea bass, cook those on the grill and make tacos, things like that. Because I, 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 I wanted to do seafood. I've been in love with seafood since, you know, I was a teenager. And that was, uh, I, I, there's something that I always wanted to do. Where did that love come from? Um, that came from, uh, diving with my cousins in the Yucatan. So when I was there as a teenager, uh, so there was this big, this big plot of land, my great grandfather purchased, then he broke it up and gave it to, uh, gave a piece to, uh, to, uh, his children, one of those children, my grandmother. So as generations passed and my grandmother has kids and has grandkids, everybody still continues to go to these houses as a vacation spot, right? So now you, so we have like five plots of land right next to each other. And in one, it's all my first cousins. And then I have second and third cousins. And it was, you know, at one point it was, we would have hundreds of people uh, <laughs> at the same time. And that's one of the, and it's one of the most beautiful memories that I have of, you know, of, 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 of family of just, I know so many of my first and second and third cousins and, and don't just know them by name, but we actually hung out and we, and we did fun things. And, you know, uh, so uh, me and my first cousins, we would you know, always be hanging out. And there was an, an, another, another one of my cousins older, he, he was a second cousin. But he was he was an amateur diver and spear uh, spear fisherman, and he would go out. You know, he would we would be out there. You know, in the uh, chilling, and he would walk out with his with his with his uh, spear gun and his visors and his flippers, and he'd go diving. We'd see him go diving. We'd, then we'd see him come back with a bag with octopus, and he would get lobsters and uh, fin fish. And, uh, you know, one of these days he invited us to go out there with him. And so we did. And um, we, we were kind of just like shadowing him. And he was the one doing the diving and the fishing. And then slowly, as the weeks went by, we would start, you know, diving. Finally, he gave us a spear gun, which I don't know how smart that was. We were totally unqualified <laughs> to be in the water with a spear gun. Um, and... Um, you know, we, we, we started catching stuff and then we would go back to uh, his house and he would cook it. And that was kind of my first experience with uh, uh, sea to table. <laughs> and yeah. that was that was that was fascinating to me because even even back then, 
um, uh, we were already kind of detached from where our food comes from. You know, food came from a supermarket, it came from a package, it came, you know, uh, you, you would go out and buy it. And, and this idea of harvesting food straight out of the ocean and then making the ceviche that for some reason it just tastes so much better than any other ceviche I've ever had uh, was fascinating. And that's when I became kind of uh, obsessed with seafood as a consumer. You know, I, I just started to love seafood and I would always be seeking out to eat seafood in, you know, places that were near the water that might have direct access to, to, you know, the product. And, you know, mo most seafood is, is of fantastic quality. If it's, you know, if, if it's, if it's local, if it's, if it's coming from the waters of uh, where, you know, where it's being served. Um, but then when we, when, we, when, when, when I came to LA and we opened Chichen Itza, there, there really wasn't a focus on seafood. And uh, in large part, it's because traditional Yucatan food is not, you would think it's more, but it's not very seafood forward. And the seafood repertoire of Yucatan cooking is very basic. It's, you have your fried fish, you have your ceviches, you have your cocteles, and a few uh, guisados, as, as we call them, or, or like stews, uh, braises slash stews with um, octopus, and that's about it. Why do you think uh, that is? I don't know. I've asked myself that many times. Uh, I do not know why. Uh, the, that, that's, that's a question worth uh, a deep dive, uh, going down there and doing some research. Um, <laughs> but compared to other coastal regions of Mexico, the, the re repertoire of, of, of seafood, of mariscos, is very small. There are very few things that you can clearly identify as unique to Yucatan in terms of seafood. Um, maybe the style of our cocteles and the pulpo en su tinta um, are the most representative. And everything else apart from that is it's like ceviches and tostadas and it's you know pretty straight, pr pretty uh, easy to find in other coastal regions of Mexico also. You're, you have this love for seafood and you start trying to, or you start experimenting with, uh, with seafood at Chichen Itza and Obviously, you just mentioned there's not a huge tradition of seafood cooking in Yucatan cuisine. So where were you getting the inspiration for your your flavors and your creations from? So the original idea for Holbosch was to be this little ceviche bar that had three types of ceviches, three, two or three types of cocteles, and that, yeah, we would rotate between different types of fin fish and different types of uh, products, but it was really just supposed to be this tiny, uh, almost an annex to Chichen Itza. As a matter of fact, I thought about calling uh, calling it like Chichen Itza, just being part of Chichen Itza, like Chichen Itza's ceviche bar. Um, mm -hmm. And the thing is, it had a big kitchen. The space that we got, we we really got it. We really, I really leased that space to to do per, like prep and production for Chichen Itza and to do catering. Uh, the idea was not to have this standalone restaurant that specialized in seafood and had a full menu. On the day that we opened, we had already modified that idea. And the night before opening, I went out and I got a a grill. So I got this, you know, wood burning grill to do mis to, you know, do mesquite grilled stuff on and we started doing grilled fish tacos. And if we're doing grilled fish tacos, we're already doing tacos. Well, let's let's go ahead and do like a Baja taco. 
and well we have this grill we're not just going to do a grilled fish taco let's do a whole grilled fish and let's do grilled octopus so the menu you know started expanding there and uh i i I just had so much fun with the expansions it was like it was it was liberating after a lot of time working in the traditional yucatan kitchen of you know chichen itza and look I, i love that food i grew up eating it it's 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 uh the tons of flavor uh, uh flavor memories in there and there's dishes that remind me of grandma and and other special occasions but it's very static the menu doesn't change and i i mm-hmm. i found that like holbosch became this little like creative outlet for me to ooh this is like i can do i can do other things and very, really quickly started to go outside of the realm of you know yucatan style food and i'm like well um, I want to explore the other coastal regions of Mexico because there's so much, you know, variety and and there's so many interesting uh, recipes and things that we can do, especially here in Southern California, being so close to Baja California. Uh, all the product from Baja California is is really local. I mean, if you if we're talking in terms in, in in terms of oceans, it's 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 very much local to us. So um, as we're as as I'm adding dishes and recipes to Holbox and really just having a lot of fun with it, expanding into other coastal regions of Mexico and starting to, you know, dabble into like, you know, I already mentioned like the Baja style tacos, the aguachiles um, that are uh, definitely not, you know, Yucatan Peninsula uh, style. Uh, Holbox just turned into this uh, uh, concept of regional, of coastal regional Mexican food um with just one there, there's only two constants in our um maybe three but let's say three constants in our food it has to be mexican you know it has to be uh anchored in a traditional mexican recipe from there we give ourselves a little bit of creative freedom to play around with it but it it it, it has to be anchored that way uh it has to be made with uh local southern california most of the time local southern california we do use Mayan octopus from the Gulf of Mexico. And there's something else. Oh, we use Branzino also, which is not local at all. But um, it's, <laughs> it, it's, it, it, it is a solid fish that people love. Um, and uh, that's why we have it on the menu. And then number three, it has to be you know, things that are exciting for us as, as cooks. And I think that's, that's one of the most important ones is that we, we, we need to be excited about the ingredients. We need to be excited about the processes that we're doing. We need to be excited about, you know, what we're doing on a day-to-day basis to kind of continue the growth and, and the forward momentum of, of our kitchen, but also so we can uh, you know, kind of transfer that excitement over to the guests. And, and you know, I find that the, the more, the, the more uh, excited my team is about either a new ingredient or a new process, let's say, I don't know, our tostada raspadas that we're doing now it's just a tostada right um but it's a really cool tostada for us and we're super excited and i you know as i'm I'm doing rounds and you know walking down the ceviche bar i always hear my my staff you know you know and, and i see them showing the tostadas and doing the motions you know showing the guests how we make them I, I, are you familiar with the tostada raspada I've read about tostada de espada. So tostada suffered kind of the same fate that uh, bread did with uh, with with Wonder Bread. It, it just became this this 
it, it comes from a bag. It's 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 in every supermarket. It's cheap. It's unimportant, right? And um, it's just it's everywhere. It doesn't really matter. It it you know the tostada espada is a is is a style of tostada originally from the state of Jalisco. You you spend a lot of time making it, and it's you you starts off as a fresh ball of masa, um, you know exactly the same uh, ball of. Uh, Roundup nixtamal that you use for a good handmade tortilla. You press that, you know, handmade tortilla. It goes on the comal. Now, once it goes onto the hot, the comal, which is the griddle, hot griddle, um, the, the the process of cooking it is a little different. We want to undercook one side. That's kind of the, the most important thing. Uh, slightly overcook the other side. So there's no, there's only one flip, and it's a very quick flip. It's for a few seconds, right? Like 95% of the cooking is on one side. So when we take this tortilla off the comal, uh, essentially we have a slightly crispy bottom and a raw top. And then that tortilla goes on to the metate, which is the traditional Mexican volcanic stone grinding table or device that you use to grind up your nixtamalized corn to make masa. Or let's say your chiles uh, and, and ingredients for a mole. And uh, with the mano, which is the long kind of kind of bar-shaped piece of volcanic stone that you use to, to grind with, we peel off the top layer of raw masa. And that's where it gets its name, raspada. That action is raspar. Estamos raspando las tortillas. Um, it means to so, like, scrape. scrape. It means to scrape. Or... Yeah, 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 we're scraping them. Exactly. Um, so two things happen when you do that. Number one, you get a thin tortilla right so it's it's half the thickness that it originally was and number two you've exposed the interior porous damp surface of the tortilla um so the next step is dehydrating them now traditionally uh these would go onto planks and they would go uh, onto the roof uh and they would be sun-dried uh here we do use a dehydrator we don't set them out on in the parking lot uh, the roof of Mercado La Paloma just full of uh, tostadas that are sun dried out. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, so we use a dehydrator. They go into the dehydrator um, for an initial drying. They go in for two hours. We take those out and then we let them dry just on 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 like cooling racks in the kitchen for an additional uh, at least twenty four hours, preferably forty eight hours. So at this point, the the, uh, the tortilla is, is dry. It's tough, but it's like chewy. It's it's definitely not a, a, a good. Uh, it's not a good bite. Uh, and then it gets fried, and then when this dehydrated, dehydrated, thinned out tortilla gets fried, um, it almost takes on like a chicharron like puff. It gets like a, a little air bubbles uh, work their way into it, and it's 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 just a different texture. But more important, I mean, the texture is very important, very, very important. Uh, also very important is that it's nice and thin. It's not, it's not a thick, chewy tostada. And if we're doing a ceviche and we're like taking extra time and care to source this beautiful fish and it's delicate and we're trying to balance the, the salt and the acidity in the ceviche and the right amount of vegetables, we're trying to compose a good ceviche. Um, we want to, we want to pair that with like the best tostada that we can. And one that doesn't overpower, you know, the ceviche that really just complements it. Um, and then it has a well-defined corn flavor.
because it started off as a fresh ball of masa. So, you know, things like that. And we're excited about the tostadas. And um, we, when we tell our guests, we, I, I can see that excitement transferring over to the guests. And, and that's, that's really kind of, kind of the core of, of, um, of what we do. I love that. I mean, I'm, I'm not even a, a guest right now. I'm just a dude listening to you describe this and the excitement is transferring over to me. And, and, <laughs> and, and it's because it's like you are describing like fanaticism that, you know, uh, bread bakers use for their perfect sourdough loaf or pizza makers use for their their dough or something like that. For, as you said, uh, an ingredient that I think a lot of us associate with just people pulling out of a bag, even even at the finest cevicherias in Los Angeles, right? You don't really think of the tostada as the star in a lot of the like dishes that you eat. So it's really cool the amount of dedication and attention you're putting to it. Yeah, it's important. And I, I don't I don't like to use the analogy too much of comparing ceviche to sushi. Um al- although there are some some parallels, right? Uh but um sushi rice it's so important you know it's 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 just as or 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 more important than than uh the protein that goes on it it's just a super important component of it and i've always i've, I've you know i love sushi i've always eaten sushi and said hmm, man i wish there was a combination in mexican food that was as perfect as sushi rice and fish and there might not be yet <laughs> i think there is that's a tough <laughs> one to eat but if we're going to be doing tostadas, we want to do them with. We want to. We want to get as close as we can uh, to making the perfect tostada. We're never going to get there, and our raspadas are by no means perfect. I'm. There's. I'm. There are better ones out there. I am sure, but it's ours, and we enjoy the process, and we learned how to do it on our own. And um, it's like I said, it's just one of those things that we're excited about, and we're excited to tell people about. Very, very cool. I want to hear about some of your other dishes because you, you know, I think uh, there are some iconic ones that, you know, whenever you hear Holbosch, you see picture things like the uh, pulpo and sutinta, the, the compachi taco. I'm curious about, you know, how do you come up with these things? How, how do you come up with these dishes? How do you ideate them? And uh, is there one that you're particularly proud of that you're like, if you're visiting Holbosch, you cannot leave without having this particular bite? Um, I would say the one I'm most proud of right now, and, and, and this does change, is the smoked kampachi taco. I love the taco in and of itself. I love the the fact that it pays homage to a traditional Mexican style of you know of taco, which is the smoked barlin taco. Um, and I love the fact that it's one of those recipes um, that we get to use the entire fish. Like that recipe came from a place of, well, we're buying all this, you know, beautiful whole compachi and we're using the fillets and we're using the skin and we're using the bones, you know, for stock. But what do we do with all these heads, you know? And um, so what we do with the heads is that we smoke them. So we hot smoke the heads in uh, apple wood and, um, then we, you know, t- till they're fully cooked and, you know, almost kind of falling apart. Then we pick all the meat off the head. So the crown and the cheek and all the gelatinous bits around the eyes and the eye sockets. Take all that meat off. So this is like a very gelatinous, kind of very umami forward meat. 
um and it's 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 it's, sort of, it's probably the best me it's I, I would say the head is the best and then the collars and then the rest of the fish um so take all this meat that we've you know we we smoke a big pile of heads and we take all the meat off then we make what's you know uh called a guisado so it's basically stewed in like chilies uh dry chilies aromatics and herbs and what we end up is with this really broken down the like the meat gets broken down completely into like paste and the, it, uh, i shouldn't use paste that sounds terrible it's a spread it's like a spread uh this I it if it was a paste a spread <laughs> don't worry it, it all works for you good okay so then this 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 uh spread um goes inside like a really nice handmade tortilla which we should we should also talk about the the, the masa program that we have right now um some really nice locally made oaxaca cheese and the, the tacos folded over kind of like a quesadilla and it's griddled both sides with a little bit of clarified butter to get a little bit of crunch on the tortilla and then we serve that with a uh, peanut salsa matcha and then a uh, salsa cruda a little slice of avocado and it's just a really tasty taco but um, the process, the process of the heads and using the entire fish. Um, that's, you know, something that I, I, I really like. I'm, you know, in, in that phase where I was learning about, you know, classic, classic cooking and making sauces, charcuterie was something that absolutely fascinated me. And um, we also make a fish sausage. Uh, yeah, let's just call it fish sausage. I was going to say something like sausage, but that doesn't really work. Um, <laughs> And the fish sausage is made with the scrapings of the carcass of you know different varieties you know, varieties of fish. So after we've you know filleted the fish, we just take a spoon and scrape all the meat off, and then that um, gets uh, frozen into discs in little deli cups. And then when we have enough discs, you know uh, we we semi thaw it out and then run it run that through the grinder and make a sausage with it, which is part of our seafood stew. It goes into our seafood stew. That is amazing. I love this ethos of, you know, nothing gets thrown away. We find a way to repurpose everything. And, you know, I can only imagine what's going on in your mind when you're thinking of these things. You're like, okay, I'm pulling back from all of this knowledge I have from these these various cooking books and techniques and whatnot that I've read about. What can I, How can I put A with B and make something spectacular? I mean, it's it's like it's like seeing a beautiful mind right now happening in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, it's good to have that background. And I'm by no means a classically trained chef, um, or or you know, I can't even claim to remember everything that I studied in those books. But the the concepts of you know of of fabrication and of butchery and of you know making sauces and bread making, they still kind of linger around there. I, I have this idea. I remember, you know. That, you can use this for that, and I think that does that does come come into play. But yeah, our our, our food is is um, I think I think the food of Holbosch is unique in 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 the sense that um, it originated at Mercado La Paloma. So really, the only restaurant where I've cooked at you know professionally um, is Chichen Itza. Few a year or so at the second location, MacArthur Park, that folded. But mostly, all of my—I mean, all of my cooking experience—is in this one building in South LA, in Mercado La Paloma. Um, and the kind of the concept of Polbosch is not of any specific region, although there is 
you know, probably more Yucatan influence than of any other coastal region of Mexico. But, you know, I, I think Holbosch is, 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 is unique in that sense that if, you know, if I, if you like it, this is kind of the only place where you can get it. Sure. I don't think, yeah. There's nothing that I've had like it. I mean, even when I think of like really famous seafood restaurants, even in Mexico, you think of like Contramar or something like that. Yeah, it's 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 not the same. It's just not the same. There's there's nowhere that I've ever eaten that is quite like Holbosch, and I mean that as a compliment. Um, I do want to talk to you about the MASA program, though, because I know that that's something that you all have worked really hard on, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about how it came together and what distinguishes it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you um, for for those kind words. They're very very generous, and and uh, really do appreciate it. Um, the Vasa program that we have is not, it's not ours. It's really not a Holbosch program. It's one of our team members. So um, one of one of our chefs, uh, Fatima, uh, who was part of the original team, which it was only four of us uh, when we opened Holbosch in 2017. Um, so she was one of the four and she, she, she came via Chichen Itza. She was working at Chichen Itza. And I kind of, you know, I saw the potential in her. She was, you know, pretty amazing. And I pulled her over to Holbosch. Um, she was with us for many years. And then she kind of stepped away to go work at other kitchens and you know, kind of follow uh, other opportunities. And now she came back and she has, uh, she, she, she does you know, two things for us. She's our catering chef. So she's in charge of offsite events and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And then she's also running uh, her own a master program called Comal with a K, K-O-M-A-L, Los Angeles. And uh, this is her small business that she's starting, and she's currently running it out of the Holbosch kitchen, um, where she is buying uh, heirloom varieties of corn from a, uh, from, a, from, from a company called Tamoa in uh, Mexico. And uh, Tamoa is uh, a little different from the other companies that are importing corn in that uh, they um, they work with the uh, with the farmers um, with the families to you know buy leftovers of corn that they have um, to buy whatever it is that they're farming. They don't come in and say, "Well, I want you to 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 do this, and I'll buy it at this price." It's more of a partnership that they have uh, with the farmers. Anyway, um, so uh, she's bringing in different varieties of corn, and we're you know we're we're getting to explore uh, certain varieties of corn that we've you know never had before. Uh, she's you know currently has some corn from Yucatan coming in, and some from Estado de Mexico, and and some from Oaxaca. And these are red corns, pink corns, blue corns, yellow corns, uh, cremoso, which is like a creamy, light like white, almost between white and yellow corn. And um, yeah, I mean, we get to have this amazing variety of masas that changes several times, sometimes per week. And um, and then she gets space to start start her business. So, and we're very excited about that, you know. And and just just having the aromas of nixtamalizing corn uh, and grinding corn in our kitchen every morning is it's special, you know. And it makes really for cool. it makes for really great tostadas and tacos, and it makes for fantastic tostada raspadas also. 
I, and the actual nixtamalization, a lot of, I feel like quite a few taquerias these days, you can see them making tortillas in house, but the actual nixtamalization process still happens elsewhere. So pretty cool that it's happening right there on site when you go to Hobosh. Yeah, I mean, and, and there's definitely a few places that do it. I mean, right off the top of my head, I can mention uh, Taco Maria, Carlos Salgado. He was a really early proponent of corn as 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 kind of the foundation of of uh, his Mexican kitchen and he paid a lot of attention to varieties of corn and using uh, and doing their own nixtamalization you know one of the first ones now there's you know several restaurants that do it um we, we didn't for a long time we were buying our masa from a really good molino in East LA um and we still work with them uh, Chichen Itza still uses their masa and we still use their masa for for certain things. Unfortunately, we're not. We haven't polished our process for making tostadas raspadas to the point where we can make that for everything. We just use it for uh, the kind of menu category of tostadas. We have these little tostaditas, a little larger than taco size. And the idea of that kind of section of the menu, um, which has only been on the menu for three months is that you can order, mix and match them. Like, you know, you do tacos and you don't have to commit to you know, a big bowl or a big plate of ceviche, but you can get one of this, one of this, one of that. And that's what we use the tostada raspadas for. Although I would love uh, one day to, you know, be able to scale up the production. Um, they are very labor intensive and it would require some serious planning to do that. Um, but to scale up the production, to be able to use them for everything. But right now, we're very happy just having them available for those you know, kind of special menu items for our tasting menus, um, and just and 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 having this beautiful masa for every single tortilla that comes out of the kitchen, tacos and orders. Yeah. That's awesome! Really cool. I want to talk about real quick the omakase experience that's available at Holbosch because I think that's. Am I correct in saying that's something that came later down the line? Wasn't there on day one? Was not there on day one, no. No, that's that the 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 tasting menu kind of evolved from just regular guests starting to come in and asking not to be burdened with choice, <laughs> saying, Hey, can you just can you just make stuff for me? you know? And um, yeah, I was more than happy to. And we would, you know, give them a little ceviche and get a little Get a, have fun with it, get a little creative and just make something that we've never made before. And because we knew these were regular customers and they just, they wanted something different, something new. So um, then they started, uh, you know, telling other people about it and more guests started coming in and asking for, um, for the omakase experience uh, to the point where we're like, well, should we just like officially offer a tasting menu? And we did, and it got off to a very slow start. I remember when it started, we would book, uh, you know, on a good week, we would have five guests come in. Um, and we were offering it Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, a single seating per day. And we would have like two guests on Friday and maybe three guests on Saturday. And, and that was it. And, it, you know, it, it, um, it slowly started getting traction to the point where we we're starting to have issues because we were just writing these reservations down on a sheet of paper. Um, maybe it was like an, a calendar app on an iPad, something like that. 
And as it started getting more traction, we um, you know, decided, I think we need a reservation platform because this is getting a little complicated. Um, so we did, and we started putting the reservations out on talk. And uh, then you know, more people started coming in, and we started getting some mentions in some articles uh, about the Mexican seafood tasting menu. And it started snowballing, and now it's, you know, it's, it's a thing. I mean, it's, it's a part of what we do, and we only offer it two nights a week. It's Thursdays and Fridays uh, with two seatings, a six o'clock and an eight o'clock. And we were in the very, very fortunate and blessed position to be sold out for you know two months, which is how long we offer it for. And um, it's, it's not a lot of seats. You know, we just, we just do uh, 16 guests per day on you know, Thursday and 16 on Friday. And it's something that we'll continue to do because it's so much fun to do. It's 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 a great opportunity to sit down in front of you know eight people and really try to tell the story of who we are and what we're trying to do. Um, most yeah. of the I, thank you. Yeah, most of the items on the on the omakase on the tasting menu are not on the regular menu, and they're just it's just kind of a a a a. a a synthesis of ingredients that we're excited about, uh, preparations or techniques that we're you know experimenting with or playing around with or thinking about incorporating into the regular menu, and um, just kind of the essence of what we're excited about as chefs. Um, and then it's a fantastic opportunity to connect with the diner, and really just you're sitting down in front of them for an hour and a half, and we. You know, get into conversations very much like this one about the origins and the why and and the what and um, get to know a lot about the customers also. What a treat! I love that. That's I mean, I'll talk about unique dining experiences around the city. I have to ask about this because you know you it's been a big year for Holbosch. You have been named the 2023 LA Times Restaurant of the Year. It's not the first accolade you've received. You've been nominated for James Beard Awards and uh you know you've been on countless best of lists including uh, I named you the number 3 best taqueria in Los Angeles on my uh on my crawl of, of taquerias last year. Um we joked about that on Instagram. I'm, I'm not throwing shade. I think you uh, owe me a plaque. No, I do. I owe you a plaque. I was hoping you didn't bring it up, but I will. I owe you. A plaque. I've been waiting to mention that. It's, uh, you know, it. There's a space on the wall that is empty, and it's waiting for that plaque. Okay. Well, as I said, I'm coming on Thursday. Who knows? Maybe you'll get your plaque. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I just wanted to ask, what has all of this acclaim been like? What is, especially the LA Times Restaurant of the Year? Getting that call, how did that feel? You know, it's it's very surreal. Um, we, we we already talked about kind of my my, my journey to to where we're at right now with Holbosch in that I didn't I didn't like to cook and very much uh, self taught and it's it's it, yeah it's very surreal to to be in this position to be in the privileged position of be being able to kind of represent an amazing collection of restaurants that could have been restaurant of the year this year that were deserving, that were, I'm sure that were candidates and they were in discussions. And uh, I feel very lucky that we got picked as one. Um, I, I'm not saying it's all luck. I, I do understand that we put in the work and the passion and the dedication and that I have an amazing team that come in 
every day and just knock it out of the park um to put us in the position to be in in the conversation but yeah i kind of feel lucky to be the the chosen one this year to represent an amazing uh, uh amazing just collection of restaurants of family-owned restaurants of chefs of of uh, this uh, all these places that make los angeles this amazing place to eat in um so yeah it's 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 definitely it's a blessing it's amazing um hearing hearing the news the first thing um was uh, i mean it's disbelief it's like did i did did i hear that right um i'm sure i didn't hear that right huh how did you hear? Like, what was it? An email? Was it a phone call? What, what happened? You know, it, it, it was an email. It was an email, and it's it it makes it even so much more special. Um, this restaurant of the year uh, award, because the person who wrote me the email was Lori Ochoa. Um, I don't know if you know Lori Ochoa, but she was she was Jonathan Gold's wife, and Jonathan Gold was the first person. Uh, I mean, going even further back he was the first like supporter of holbosch the first person that started i'm sorry of chichen itza that started writing about chichen itza and he was by far the first person to write something uh in in a major publication about holbosch and this was a few months after we'd opened and you know we knew that jonathan gold was a supporter of ours through chichen itza and um, my wife and I had conversations often about, I wonder if Jonathan Gold's ever going to come by and if he's going to review Holbosch and what he's going to think. And he started showing up uh, a f- three or four months after we opened. And I was truly hoping that he wasn't going to be writing something anytime soon because I didn't feel that Holbosch had found its footing yet. And I didn't think that we'd found our our, our style. I, I, I very much knew that we we were still kind of we were we were exploring. We hadn't landed on what Holbosch is today. We were still kind of refining the concept and what it was going to be. But indeed, he did write a review, and it was a fantastic review. It was such it was such a beautiful and great review. And um, a few months after the review came, um, he asked me to co co host with him uh, the Taste of LA um, at Paramount Pictures. And um, I did, and we, you know, I saw him for the first time in person since the review came out um, at the Taste, and we were going to share a stage for something. And I told him, "Hey, uh, he, Jonathan, by the way, I had, you know, I had the opportunity to tell you in person. Thank you so much for that beautiful review. You know, I really appreciate it." Jonathan was always, you know, a, a little difficult to read, um, in, in, at least to me. I didn't exactly know what he was thinking or what he was um, trying to say. And he said, he, all, he, all, all he answered, he kind of paused for a second and thought, and he said, yeah, I think the food should be better in a few years. And I was like, <laughs> what, what do I do with that? Did you like it? Did you not? Like, what are you saying? But um, I, I, I do, like, it took me a while, probably until now, and probably through having a few conversations with Lori about, uh, what Jonathan thought of Holbosch well, and it was that you know he saw something it was unpolished it wasn't there yet but what he was trying to say was hey you know I believe in you keep at it you know keep working on this and it, it, it's gonna work and so the fact that we, I got the email um, about restaurant of the year from Lori made it 
even more special because of that. I, I think Jonathan Gold was a, is a huge reason why uh, we, we are where we are. That's such a cool story, man. I mean, it's almost like a full circle moment in that way. It is. I mean, I think I'm done. I think I can retire now. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, you got a lot. You got a lot of uh, of cooking ahead of you. And actually, that that leads me to my final question, which is, what's next? I mean, obviously, obviously, you know, you're going to get your plaque from the LA Food Podcast, and that's going to be huge for you. But uh, what else? What else is next? What's coming up? What can we expect? Oh, I, I think a lot of the same. Um, I think uh, my really my joy is in uh, running my little seafood stand in our little food hall in South LA. Uh, I used to think that um, expanding and maybe moving to a different location, uh, maybe a, a fancier location, was going to be uh, the direction I wanted to go into because that would mean accomplishment. That would mean success. Um, you know, as of today, as we're having this conversation, um, I, I I feel I, I feel that we've achieved you know what we set out to do and 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 more a lot more I mean never thought we'd be in this position to have so many wonderful supporting customers uh, coming to our little seafood stand and to you know be on the LA Food podcast and to be in Chicago for the James Beard Awards and to be you know the restaurant of the year. Um, I think I'm going to continue to do exactly what I've been doing. And that is, uh, you know, continue to try to be excited about seafood and cooking for our customers and being in there um, with the team and not really, not really thinking about, you know, other restaurants or projects at the moment. If the right opportunity comes along, you know, and, and I do sit down and, you know, take the meetings and, and and listen to to people when they have something to say, but you know, for now, I'm I'm very happy where 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 we're at. So, just 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 more whole bullshit, Mercado La Paloma. So what you're saying is we might see a whole bullshit LAX coming soon. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I uh, look. I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart, and also from the bottom. I think you know from. I don't like to speak on behalf of all Los Angeles diners because I don't re- represent them all. I love them. I, I think that the city owes you, a, you and your family, a big thank you for all of the work you've done over the past two decades just to introduce all of us and to bring us excellent Yucatec, Yucatecan food. And for the last, you know, five, 10 years of all of the passion that you've put in to the world of seafood and bringing that to us. So, you know, just thank you. And thank you for joining us today. I On, on a closing note, where can people find you if they're looking for you? Our, our listeners, if they've never heard of Holbosch, where can they find you online? Um, so you can find us on Instagram at Holbosch Los Angeles, our website, holboschla.com. Uh, or better yet, just stop by Mercado La Paloma and say hi. Um, usually there. Awesome. Chef, well, thank you so much for making time for us. And uh, yeah, wishing you uh, all, all future success. And I can't wait to try one of these tostada raspadas, which I will not be able to stop dreaming about uh, for the entire day. So thank you for that. Luca, it was it was a lot of fun talking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, it's it's you know it's it's a treat um, to get to uh, share our story, um, you know, with uh, 
the listeners of your podcast who are you know enthusiasts of the of the of of food and the LA dining scene. Uh, thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of the LA Food Podcast, and thanks to our illustrious guest, Gilberto Cetina, for joining us. If you like what you heard, please go to wherever you listen to podcasts, leave us a rating, a review, subscribe. It turns out those pesky ratings and reviews really help, so honestly, if you leave one, I will be eternally grateful. We'll be back next week, and if you're looking for me in the meantime, you can find me on TikTok, Instagram, and threads at the LA Countdown. That's T-H-E. L-A-C-O-U-N-T-D-O-W-N. You can also find me on Instagram at L-A-Food Pod. That's L-A-F-O-O-D-P-O-D.